0: Well, it was about uh, seven weeks ago now that uh, we began a series of messages called By the Spirit, and uh, it's over the course of this Pentecost season, the season leading up to this particular day known as the Day of Pentecost, that I wanted to press in with you on the theme of God's Spirit, the ministry of God's Spirit, um, really in anticipation of, of this day. 50 days ago, we marked the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, often referred to as Easter Sunday. There are 50 days, you may or may not know, between the the day after the Sabbath of Passover and the next feast on the Jewish calendar, which in Hebrew is referred to as Shavuot. Shavuot, it's a harvest festival, separated by 50 days from the festival of Passover when Jesus died and was resurrected. So over the course of this time, my heart has been to remind all of us of something I already, you know, most of us already know, something you've heard me talk about many times over the course of the last uh, several years if you've been a part of our congregation, but it's something we often lose sight of. It's something we need to be reminded of and refocused on. And that is our absolute necessity for the presence and power of God to be working in our lives by way of the Holy Spirit. As I put it last Sunday, the key question each of us need to be asking ourselves is how we are learning and practicing dependence on God's Spirit To do what's otherwise beyond our own power and ability. That's what the Holy Spirit specializes in. Helping people do what they can't do by themselves. So we've looked at many aspects of what the Holy Spirit's meant to do for us over these last seven weeks. We've talked about regeneration, the giving of new life in Christ from the Spirit. We've talked about revelation, the making known of God's character and will by the Spirit. We've talked about and studied how the Spirit's constantly about the work of convicting us of sin and shaping our lives more and more into the likeness of Jesus by making us holy as He is holy. We've considered the invitation to keep in step with the Spirit by being more consistently filled with the Spirit's presence. And of course, through it all, I've tried to emphasize that the life of Christ available to us through the Holy Spirit has to be proactively sought. And received by way of the practice of prayer. So there's a connection between our practice of prayer and the way in which we receive the ministry of God's Spirit in our lives. Essentially, the practice of prayer invites the Spirit's ongoing work in our lives and helps us to stay submitted to the Spirit's leadership and guidance. But as we wind this series down, uh, today and and next week, over these next two weeks. And as we celebrate the actual day of Pentecost today, there's one more vital purpose of the Spirit's ministry in our lives that I want to bring your attention to. Not something that we've really talked about much yet over the last seven seven weeks, although I hope it's a, a concept that's familiar to you at least. And that, my friends, is the unique empowerment of the Spirit given to us so that we can speak about Jesus to other people. The heart of God is not just that we would receive the Holy Spirit for our own benefit, for our own blessing, to help make us more holy and more like Jesus. The heart of the Father is that we would receive the Spirit so that we can proclaim with power the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Let me begin with an illustration this morning that really uh, captures the heart of, of what I want you to catch this morning, the vision I want you to catch for the Spirit's ministry in our lives. It's, it's a story that's told in a newsletter I received just a few weeks ago uh, from Frontiers Ministry. Uh, if you're not familiar with Frontiers, it's a phenomenal missions agency that literally sends missionaries around the globe to minister in foreign lands. And uh, in their newsletter, they highlighted a story. From one of their frontiers workers, missionaries, a, gal, a young gal named Anne. Here's what Anne wrote about her experience I met Johara while she was studying at a university in the South Asian city that I live in. She's a young Muslim woman from Saudi Arabia who was introduced to me by mutual friends. We saw each other at a few social events, but had never really said more than a hello. That is, until the week that we ran into each other four different times at four different places. Each time, we agreed that we should make plans to get together, and each time, I knew that we wouldn't actually do it. We were busy women with full schedules. But the fourth time our paths crossed that week, I said, Clearly, God wants us to get together. He keeps making us run into each other. Johara agreed, and this time we made plans to meet at her home the following week. When I arrived at her apartment, we sat down to a meal that she'd prepared and immediately began chatting. It was mostly small talk at first, but then Johara got serious. I know. Why, God wanted us to meet, she said. He gave me a dream last night in which I told you things that I've never told anyone else. And I know God wants me to tell you now. Johara then went on to share how her uncle had sexually abused her over a period of several years while he was living with her family. It had started when she was only four years old. My parents believed me When I finally found the courage to tell them about the abuse, Johara said, they acted immediately to protect her and informed the uncle that he could no longer live with them. In fact, they told him that he was never welcome in their home again. But Johara's parents were afraid of bringing shame on the family, so they didn't tell anyone else what had happened. As a family, they never spoke of it again, and nobody ever found out what her uncle had done. To make matters worse, her uncle still showed up at weekly family gatherings. He never faced any punishment or recrimination for his actions. Johara felt that her parents had protected her as well as they could in their culture, but to this day she was still bound by unspoken grief, pain, and shame. Meanwhile, she'd been rejected by several potential husbands, Every time her family found a suitable prospect for her, Johara felt compelled to tell him that she wasn't pure. At that point, the suitor would walk away, leaving Johara feeling abandoned and unlovable. My heart broke for her. The abuse was wrong, I said. That abuse was wrong, and your uncle should have been brought to justice. I'm so sorry. You are worth so much more. I told her, this is, these are Anne's words, I told her that God loved her and wanted to heal her and that through Jesus Christ, she could find her true worth as a child of the king. We prayed together right then and there. And for the first time in her life, Johara felt peace. After that, we called and visited each other often. Every time I shared more from God's word with her. I told her how Jesus makes us righteous and holy that in him we are new creations. God gave her more dreams and assured her that I was a safe person for her to share with. Her stories were heavy burdens to carry, but little by little I helped her bear the pain and offer it to Jesus. And as he healed her, Johara became less burdened by her past. But she still couldn't believe that God saw her as pure and clean. Through our times of prayer, uh, he always gave her peace, but she couldn't shake the shame of her abuse. One day, as I was leaving her house, Johara asked me where I was going. To a time of prayer with my friends, I answered. She asked if she could come along. I told her, yes, and I texted my teammates to let them know that I was bringing Johara along with me. During our prayer meeting, a teammate asked Johara if he could lay hands on her and pray. She said yes and asked us to pray for her back pain. As we prayed, her pain lifted, and we all marveled at the mercy of God. God's healed you physically, I said to her, but he also wants to take away your emotional pain. Just as he's restored your body, he also wants to bind up the wounds of your soul. That was exactly what she wanted. And as we prayed together, Johara invited Jesus to heal her soul over the next few weeks Johara forgave her parents for not reporting her uncle's abuse God continued to free her and today she no longer feels bound by the weight of pain and shame her faith has grown steadily as she learns to trust Jesus she's even forgiven her uncle for her, for abusing her free in Christ Johara is understanding more of her worth and identity as a daughter of the Lord Almighty. Isn't that a beautiful story? And don't you just love how the Holy Spirit orchestrated this relationship? He kept bringing Anne across Johara's path until Anne realized This is a divine appointment. God is bringing us together for a reason. Then she stepped out in faith to begin to demonstrate and declare the love and grace of God available through Jesus. And the result? A changed life. A healed life. Now, let me bring you back to Pentecost, this day that we celebrate and that's been celebrated down through the ages, not just since the first outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the early church that we read about in Acts chapter 2, but do you know, are you aware that this day, this feast of Shavuot has been celebrated by the Hebrew people for? thousands of years, even before the birth of Jesus. This day on the Hebrew calendar every year is a sacred day that God set apart for his purposes. It's often referred to as the Feast of Harvest. It came to be called Pentecost, a Greek word, because the Greek word pentecostes literally means 50th. And this feast was always held 50 days after the Sabbath following the Passover. So that's where the name Pentecost comes from. This period between Passover and Pentecost is traditionally marked by what's called uh, the countdown, the counting of the Omer, the 50 days in anticipation of Shavuot's arrival. So today, that annual countdown that the Hebrew people observe comes to an end with the celebration in their culture of the spring wheat harvest. It's an occasion of great joy and festivity uh, throughout Israel, and particularly in Jerusalem. But as we know, with the hindsight of history to our advantage, God had other great plans in store for this day in history, the day of Pentecost. For he set this day apart as a prophetic sign and symbol of something greater, a greater harvest that was yet to come. A harvest not of wheat, but a harvest of changed lives. So Pentecost became the day then on which God poured out his spirit upon the early church, which led in turn to a great ingathering, a great harvest of people through the witness of the early believers. That's the symbolism that's at play in this particular feast or Jewish festival. This is an event of great significance, of course, then in the life of the early church. But what I want you to understand is that this is about more than church history. God has something for us in the promise of Pentecost. That first Pentecost is a paradigm for how God moves, and one that has very personal application for each and every follower of Jesus. The promise of baptism in the Holy Spirit was offered not just for those present on the first day of Pentecost, but to all whom the Lord our God will call as followers of Jesus. And the result of that experience, as we'll see today, is a unique empowerment to speak about Jesus for the benefit of others. So that's a little preview of where we're headed this morning. Let's begin by taking a closer look at that first Pentecost and how it illustrates what God is eager to do in each one of our lives. So the first takeaway here I want to draw your attention to is that Pentecost illustrates that Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit. On all those who follow him. Now, this might not be a news flash for you. This might not be uh, something you've never heard of before. In fact, we've really alluded to this all throughout the series of messages we've been um, digging into over these last seven weeks. But I want to just draw your attention once again to the basic reality, the basic promise, the basic biblical truth that the Holy Spirit is given, promised, and given. To every person who follows Jesus Christ. Look with me at Acts 2 1 4, the beginning of this story about what happened on the day of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost came, they, that is the early believers, the earliest group of followers of Jesus, were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So, one of the things that I want you to notice here as we look at this story and think about its significance, right out of the gate, I want you to notice that this experience of Spirit baptism is for everyone who follows Jesus. Luke tells us that they, that is the earliest followers of Jesus, which was a group of about 120, they were all together in one place. Where was that? Well, some people, historians and scholars, disagree about uh, where it was. We can't know precisely. There's some evidence that they might have been gathered in the temple itself, or Many others believe that they were in a building right near the temple, adjacent to the temple, and in fact, a large meeting facility that's connected with the tomb of David, which is just outside the temple. I was able to visit there when we went to Israel, my wife and I, just over a year ago. They were there, 120 or so of the earliest followers of Jesus, waiting and praying just as Jesus had instructed them. Waiting and praying, waiting and praying for the fulfillment of the promise that they'd been given. So what I want you to understand is that this experience that we're reading about in Acts chapter 2 was not merely limited to the 12 apostles. This was for a bigger, broader group of people Everyone at that time who identified as a follower of Jesus. They were all gathered together, waiting and praying for the fulfillment of the promise. And this was an encounter then with the Holy Spirit that was essentially as broad as it could be at that time. My point here is to emphasize that the Holy Spirit is available to all who follow Jesus. And there are a number of passages I could refer you to to back that up. But the point is, it's not just a select few, right? It's not just a couple of special people, designated leaders. It's not just to those who are more mature or more holy or more righteous. Anyone and everyone who identifies as a follower of Jesus is promised the gift of the Spirit. God's promise and heart is to impart the Spirit to each and every person who follows Jesus as Lord. Now, that impartation is referred to and described in many different ways. And you can see this even here in Acts chapter 2 and back in Acts 1 as well. Luke himself actually refers to this same thing in multiple different ways. On one occasion, he refers to it as spirit baptism. On another, he talks about it as the pouring out of the Spirit. On another occasion, he calls it being filled with the Spirit. And what's interesting to me as a pastor and sort of amateur theologian is that, you know, if you read a little bit on this, um, there's lots of disagreement and argument in the church uh, about what these different terms refer to and how, you know, what what each one means and, and whether they're actually the same thing or different things. But I think it's pretty evident as you read what Luke actually wrote and look at the fact that he used multiple terms to define and describe the same reality, all these terms are somewhat interchangeable and synonymous. So whether you call it the baptism of the Spirit or the fullness of the Spirit or um, the outpouring of the Spirit, whatever you want to call it, Luke is describing an experience that's an encounter a fresh encounter with the Holy Spirit, an impartation of the Spirit. And what they all share in common is that they all use terminology having to do with water or liquid, right? If you think about the Spirit being poured out or being baptized or think about being filled with the Spirit, all of those terms are similar and interchangeable because they reference the notion that Jesus himself explained, which is that the Spirit is like living water that flows within us. So in a sense here, you could imagine Jesus with a pitcher in his hand if you want to. And I mean, it's, it's an imperfect analogy, but I hope maybe it will help you to think about the freedom and the generosity with which Jesus wants to bless us. He's eager to release the Spirit, to pour out the Spirit upon our lives. And my own personal conviction is that there's a first time for this, and then there are successive times for this. It doesn't just happen once. You can be filled with the Spirit, as we saw last Sunday, again and again and again. It can happen multiple times over the course of a person's life. And so it's a good thing to want to be filled with the Spirit and to ask the Lord to do that for you. Now, the other thing I want you to see here, before we move on to a second insight, is that Jesus himself is the one imparting the Spirit. And this might seem insignificant at first, but I think there's something to it, and I want to describe why. Many uh, people might assume that it's the Father who releases the Spirit. And yet I want you to notice what Luke says, particularly in verse 33. And I just recently noticed this. It's something i would kind of overlooked and hadn't really paid a lot of attention to until just recently. Have you ever considered that Jesus himself is the one who actually pours the Spirit out upon the lives of his own followers. Here's the terminology that Luke uses in verse 33. Exalted to the right hand of God, he, that is Jesus, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So, think about that take it in. Luke's saying Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the Father. The Father then gives Jesus the authority and the responsibility to release the Spirit into the lives of his followers. And again, this is where you can kind of get that image of Jesus pouring out the Spirit upon the lives of those who follow him. Now, what's interesting is that this description in Acts 2.33 actually connects with and fulfills what John the Baptist had prophesied about Jesus before he even began his ministry. And that prophecy is recorded in all four of the gospel accounts. I'll just give you one example. In Matthew 3.11, John says, and, and again, this is recorded in all of the gospels, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So the baptism of the Spirit, the outpouring of the Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit, whatever you want to refer to it as, is the job or the responsibility of Jesus. And he's eager to do it. Eager to do it for us. And then there's this, if you kind of piece these references together as a puzzle. Acts 1, 4 and 5. Acts 1, 4 and 5. On one occasion, Luke writes, this is just before he's ascended into heaven. While he's eating with them, Jesus gave this command to his disciples. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So in short, the Father makes this promise, but the Son, Jesus, is the one who carries it out. Jesus himself pours out the Spirit upon those who follow him. So what we have to recognize then is that the promise of the giving of the Spirit is for all of us and that Jesus is eager to fulfill that promise. Each and every one of us are meant to receive the baptism and fullness of the Spirit, an outpouring of the Spirit. And it's for our own good that we would be receptive to that experience. God uses it to bless us in multiple ways. The uh, the outpouring of the Spirit in our lives is not some spiritual experience, though, just for our own benefit. This is where I want to transition with you to a second point that's really important for us to think about with regard to this subject. You see, this experience that Jesus offers us is not something that we ought to seek just so that we can kind of brag about it to our Christian friends. Hey, did I tell you what the Holy Spirit did to me? It's, you know, sometimes people uh, have made this into the seeking of an experience and not recognized what the purpose of that experience is for. This is an experience that Jesus offers to us for a very specific purpose that reaches beyond our own personal benefit. So here's the key. What Pentecost also illustrates is that the Holy Spirit, when we receive it, empowers people to declare and demonstrate the wonders of Jesus. That's the purpose at work here. The purpose at work in all of this, my friends, is to empower us for kingdom ministry. It's to inspire us and compel us outward so that we can overcome our natural fears and anxieties about sharing Jesus with other people. Anybody have those? Hello? Can we be honest? Let me take for a moment, take you for a moment, back to the promise of Acts 1.8. We saw in Acts one four and 5, Jesus says, wait for the promise to be fulfilled. Pray, wait and pray, wait and pray until the promise is fulfilled and the Spirit is received. So they did, they went and waited and prayed. But here's what he said just a few verses later. And this is so critical. In fact, this verse is so critical, it's the outline for the entire book of Acts. This single verse is the thesis statement that Luke puts forward for the entire book of Acts. Acts 1, verse 8, here's what it says. The words of Jesus, perhaps even among the last words of Jesus before he ascended into heaven. He said to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what I want you to see here is the connection between the two parts of that statement because they are vitally interconnected. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you Not just for your own benefit, but so that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So it's okay, perhaps, to seek the presence and power of God's Spirit, the fullness of God's Spirit, for your own benefit. But it's even better if you're motivated by a desire to speak of Jesus thank you. I appreciate the support. You see, this verse shows us the expanding impact of the gospel as lives are changed, like Johara's. This verse, Acts 1.8, represents a series of concentric circles. Think about it on a map. Think of Jerusalem as the center of the earth. That's at least how the Jewish people always thought of it. Jerusalem is the center of the earth, and everything else is the ends of the earth, right? And and that's really the, the idea in mind behind this verse. So you have these concentric circles. Jerusalem is the center of the target, and then Judea and Samaria are the next concentric circles out, the surrounding regions just beyond Jerusalem, and then you get to the ends of the earth. That's everywhere else, like Lansing. You ever think about that? Lansing is the ends of the earth. Here we are, living in the ends of the earth. But there's actually another way to look at this. If you, if you take this promise and personalize it, I think you could actually flip it around. And I think if Jesus were here with us right now, he might say to us, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Lansing and in Ingham and Eaton County and to the ends of the earth. Right? The concentric circles idea still applies, but the center of the earth is where you are in this moment. Now, with that idea in mind, that's that's the outline for where the whole story of the book of Acts is going to take us, right? Acts 2, the disciples receive the power of the Spirit, just as they were promised, and then, boom, what happens? They begin to speak about Jesus with boldness, with authority, with power, with courage, with conviction. They begin to open their mouths and declare the wonders of who Jesus is, and lives begin to be changed. This is the miracle of how God has designed salvation to be communicated through human lips. It's amazing. I don't know why in the world he would do such a thing, but he did like it or not. So if you look at how the story unfolds, even in Acts 2, right away, they receive this this experience of the empowerment of the Spirit, and what do they do with it? They begin to proclaim the wonders of God. They begin to proclaim the, the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done. So Acts 2, 11 and 12, right? All these people from all these nations are gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Shavuot. And they're amazed. Their minds are blown. What's going on? All these Galileans are proclaiming the wonders of God and we hear them somehow in our own languages. Now, you know, here, this is another point of debate and I don't want to get off onto a sidetrack here, but some people uh, would say and argue that they were actually proclaiming them in known languages, that they were given by the Spirit a gift of speaking in known tongues or languages. Other people would say, Um, no it was the it was the hearers who were being given a gift of interpretation and actually hearing and interpreting what was said in their own language you know what it doesn't really matter Can can i just say that doesn't really matter the point is they got the message the message was declared and the hearers got the message so then the story goes on a few verses later what happens Everybody's amazed. Everybody's perplexed. I like that word, perplexed. What is going on? And so Peter stands up and begins to explain. Now, let me just tell you, this is often referred to as Peter's first sermon. But let me point out to you that Peter did not go away to his study and pull out all of his books and all of his commentaries and prepare a message for Pentecost Sunday. This was spontaneous. This was in the moment. Peter was compelled, I suggest to you, by the Holy Spirit, to stand up and explain what was going on. So 214, X214, 2.14, Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And then over the next verses, the explanation unfolds. He quotes the prophet Joel. He quotes David in the Psalms. And in the end, he comes full circle and says, basically, this is who Jesus is. And you killed him, but he rose from the dead. So with these references in Acts 2:11 and 12 and Acts 2:14 what we see is the declaration of Jesus beginning to find its first expression in the mouths of his disciples. And the implication here is perfectly clear. There should be no confusion about this. Their declaration of who Jesus is, their declaration of the gospel is empowered and inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's the result of this baptism, this outpouring, this fullness of the Spirit that they encountered. So they're speaking of Jesus under the inspiration and influence of the Spirit. And here's how that applies, right? Can I, Let's get really practical about this. Do You ever find yourself in a situation where you'd like to be able to share about Jesus with somebody, but you don't know what to say? I don't know what to say. That's the very moment when you ought to be saying, Holy Spirit, help me out. I need you. Come and fill me right now, because I don't know what to say. But you do, Right? This is reminiscent, actually, of another promise. What's so, it's so fascinating if you kind of connect all these dots, right? Such a beautiful picture. Jesus actually told the disciples that this is what they should expect to happen long before it actually happened. So you go all the way back to Matthew 10 for an example of this. Verses 19 and 20. Jesus said to the disciples, But when they arrest you, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of your Father, speaking through you. Now, you know, just set aside the part about being arrested for a minute. I don't think Jesus is suggesting that it's only when you're going to be arrested that the Holy Spirit will give you what to say. I think he's just pointing out that you know this might be a supreme example of you know the the, the point of confusion in your life when you think. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I'm desperate for God's help. But the point is broader than that. Let's not assume that we have to be arrested in order to be given what to say by the Spirit. What Jesus is explaining to the disciples, what he's pointing out to them, is a very simple and basic reality. If and when you don't know what to say, don't worry about it. Don't let that stop you from saying anything. Instead, in that moment learn to depend on the Holy Spirit to give you the right words for the circumstance that you find yourself in. Would that be helpful? So let me give you an example. You know, I've been convicted many times over the years, and again recently, that I live in a bubble. I I have lots of friends, but they're almost all Christians. Christians. And it's hard for me to find opportunity as a pastor to share the gospel outside of the pulpit. I can do it here. That's you know I'm fairly comfortable with that. But you get me out in the real world, and most of the people that I rub shoulders with from day to day are already Christians. So the Lord's been challenging me and convicting me about this and just saying, dude, you got to get out of your, out of your zone. <laughs> Go find some people that you can talk to that, that don't know me yet. So, I've shared with you a little bit about what happened a few weeks ago on the "I Love My City" uh, event, where I went around with ice cream door to door at Summer Place Apartments. And on that occasion, I think I told this story a few weeks ago. The Lord connected me, I think, sovereignly with a man who is the one of the leaders of the community uh, that lives in those apartments. There are 16 families from Afghanistan, Muslim families that live in Summer Place Apartments, and. They recognized this man named Abdul as their leader, their chief. So I had a chance to meet Abdul and started to talk with him and get to know him and build relationship with him. And he invited me back. I mean, sometimes I'm a little slow, but I felt like I should go back. I felt like this was an opportunity I should walk into. So I went and met with Abdul on Thursday of this week. And for a little while we sat out on the park bench and talked and um, pretty soon a couple of other guys came and joined us. I don't know if he was texting them or I, I'm not quite sure how it happened, but um, pretty soon there were a group of three or four of us. And then one of the guys invited us back to his apartment and we went back and sat and they offered us something, something to drink. And we sat in the living room there and, and then there were like six or seven guys all of a sudden. So here I am sitting in the living room of this man that I've never met with about seven Afghani Muslims. What am I going to say? I don't know. I have no idea what to say. But I do know a little bit about how to just be friendly, how to listen, how to build relationship. So I asked questions. That's a great thing to do, by the way, if you don't know what else to do. Just ask questions. How did you get here? How long have you been here? What are your struggles? What's life like for you being Afghanis living in America? What do you struggle with? What, do you, what are your dreams? What are your desires? What, you, what do you need help with? And the conversation began to unfold, and it went directions that I never could have planned or anticipated. And I found myself, you know, offering to help these guys Somehow. And I don't know where it's going to go. It's a conversation that's not over yet. It's really just beginning. It's a relationship that's just beginning, not only with Abdul, but with all of his friends. But my point is, sometimes God sovereignly places us in situations where we know we need his help to be able to speak on Jesus' behalf. But sometimes, sometimes I think we have to put ourselves in those places too, Sometimes we have to be willing to say, you know what, I'm going to go look for somebody I can talk to. God, would you bring them across my path? And one way or the other, whether God puts you in that position or whether you kind of put yourself in that position, there's something beautiful about being in a position where you don't know what to say and you need the Holy Spirit to help you. That's a dependent situation, a dependent circumstance that gives God the opportunity to move. So let me summarize where we're at here and and wrap this up because my time is up and we want to move to some ministry time here this morning. Let me close with this. Really what I'm describing for you is what I would call a reciprocal relationship between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. You know what the word reciprocal means, right? It's something that goes both ways. It's a give and take, an equal exchange, if you will. What I'm wanting you to see and what I'm trying to describe is this reciprocal, ongoing relationship between Jesus and the Holy Spirit that we are invited into. We get to share in that relationship. We get to participate in this incredible relationship between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives his followers the Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to speak about Jesus. So that as we speak about Jesus, more people come to know Jesus, and they then receive the Holy Spirit so that they can speak about Jesus. Do you see the reciprocity that I'm describing? Jesus gives the Spirit so that the Spirit can draw people to Jesus. And what I hope you're hearing and seeing in this story from Acts 2 is that the whole concept of this reciprocal relationship between Jesus and the Holy Spirit is a partnership that we are invited into. So this partnership is ongoing. It's, it, it wasn't just for that first day of Pentecost. This is an ongoing reality in the world around us. Jesus and the Holy Spirit are constantly working together in partnership, in reciprocal relationship. And the whole purpose of that relationship is to draw people into the kingdom of God. And we get to share in that reality. So, you know, I don't want you to think of evangelism as this like, oh, I don't want to have anything to do. That's too scary. That's too difficult. I don't have any business telling someone else what they should think about Jesus. We come up with all kinds of excuses, all kinds of what we think are good reasons, but they're really rather pathetic for why we won't speak about Jesus to other people. But the reality is God gave you his spirit to help you do that. And if you don't recognize that reality and aren't willing to be receptive to it, you're missing out. You're missing out on one of the greatest opportunities that life has to offer. The incredible mystery, the incredible miracle of seeing people's lives changed by the gospel. You can't do it by yourself, but God can do it with you and through you. And if you're willing to partner with him and open your mouth to speak about Jesus, you'll be amazed at what the, what the Holy Spirit will give you to say. He's chosen. God has chosen to speak to people about Jesus through us. That's incredible. He's chosen to speak to people about Jesus through us. And we are inspired and empowered to do it by the Holy Spirit. So at the end of the story in Acts chapter 2, Peter winds this message up with a promise. Acts 2, 38 and 39. People are cut to the heart. What do we do? What do we do with this reality that you've just described to us? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. See, there it is. That's the opportunity that God's invited us into. That's, that's where this partnership that I'm describing is brought to bear. If the Holy Spirit has been poured out in your life, then open your mouth and begin to speak about Jesus and watch what happens. So there's a question. I'll, I love closing with questions because I want you to go away thinking about how you'd answer it. How do I apply this to my own life? What do I do with this message I've just heard? Here's the question I want to leave you with. Who is it that God is calling you to help him reach? Maybe you already have an idea. Maybe there's somebody that God's already placed in your path, or maybe not. Maybe for you it's somebody like, Abdul, somebody that's out there and you have to figure that out and and discover who God wants you to share with. But my point is that God is positioning us like pieces on a chessboard. He's positioning us to speak on Jesus' behalf. And then the, the corollary question is this. How could you better allow the Holy Spirit to speak and work through you as a witness for Jesus. What would it take for that to happen? What has to change in your life for you to be more receptive and responsive to the empowerment of the Spirit so that you can be a better, more effective witness for Jesus? Friends, I hope and pray that the Spirit of the Lord will be Touching you, empowering you, filling you, inspiring you. And as you think about those questions and discover your own answers, that God will move you into a place of availability. You're not there already. That's the goal. Lord, here I am. Use me as your servant. Use me as your ambassador. Use me as your messenger. Help me to speak about Jesus so that others' lives can be changed. Would you pray that with me right now?